Good morning. morning. Welcome to the Memorial Church. We will begin today's service with the responsive reading of Psalm 28 on page 14 in the Black Appleton Psalter. We will read standing by whole verse. O Lord, I call to you. My rock, do not disregard me. For if you hold aloof from me, I shall be like those gone down into the pit. Do not count me with the wicked and evildoers, who profess goodwill toward their fellows, while malice is in their heart. strength and shield. My heart trusts in him. I will shout and my heart exalted, so I will glorify him with my song. The Lord is their strength. He is a stronghold for the deliverance of his anointed. Thank you for that. 
a sermon from Mason Temple, Memphis, Tennessee, evening of April 3rd, 1968. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men, in some strange way, are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have trying to grapple with for all of history. But the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer a choice between nonviolence and violence in this world. It's nonviolence and non-existence. That is where we are today. There ends the reading. Martin Luther King Jr. was 39 years old when his life was stolen by a bullet from a gun. The older I get, the younger the more remarkable people like him become. This past Wednesday was the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's murder. It seems weird to call it an anniversary, which is both the wrong word and the worst word for what happened this week. There is little to celebrate here, only an ongoing reckoning and the most uncomfortable of America's inheritances. Three and a half weeks ago, I stood outside room 306 of the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, now a National Civil Rights Museum, where Dr. King spoke his last words and breathed his last breath. Mahalia Jackson's precious Lord, take my hand, still plays nicely as throngs of tourists, myself among them, try to bear witness to this impossibly sacred space. Later that same week, I was part of a tour of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church Parsonage where Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King made their first home. An older black woman led the tour. She was the first babysitter of the King's first child, Yolanda, and she still had the key to the front door. As we entered the very modest home, we stepped over the dark dent on the floorboards of the porch still there from the first bombing of their house during the city's historic bus boycott, the first drama that laid the 
groundwork for the most recent chapter of the nation's still ongoing black freedom struggle. Two tables in that house struck me. The kitchen table is small, surrounded by only a couple of chairs, still decorated with a vase of red flowers, an ashtray of crushed cigarettes, and the King James Bible, among other things. This is where Martin had an important and now well-known crisis of faith, wondering whether he and Coretta should return to Boston, where they first fell in love as graduate students, or Atlanta, where they would be closer and maybe safer with friends and family. The dining room table, just adjacent to the kitchen, is bigger, encircled by six chairs, variously occupied over time by Martin and Coretta, of course, and their children, but also Ella Baker and Rosa Parks and Joanne Robinson and Bayard Rustin and Ralph Abernathy and Andrew Young and Lord knows who else. They broke bread there, they decided how to break the rules there, and they invented, among other things, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference there. And these tables, too, are impossibly sacred spaces, places of revelation and revolution. There is a question in all of this that haunts me. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to stay when you are in danger? That was the question Dr. King asked himself and his wife and his baby girl and his God at that kitchen table. The answer, of course, is history. They stayed despite the many risks, despite all of those dangers. And the Montgomery bus boycott changed that city and this nation and the world. Is it worth it to stay when you might not succeed? That was the question all those people must have asked themselves at that dining room table. The answer, of course, again, is history. Dr. King and Reverend Abernathy and Andrew Young earned their place in the history books more easily than the rest, although not as easily as some who opposed them. Rosa Parks secured her own place, eventually, and deservedly so, despite the fact that the first black woman to get arrested on a Montgomery bus was Claudette Colvin, a teenager pregnant out of wedlock who could not be the face of that movement at that time. Ella and Bayard and Joanne, even Coretta, were initially sidelined or silenced by history despite the fact that it would not be the same without these phenomenal women and very brave queers. It's a powerful thing to decide to make history without the guarantee of recognition or perpetuity, simply because you feel the urgency of now so fiercely. These stories, these peoples, these histories remind me of something I always tell my students at the end of every semester. No one reads your resume at your funeral. Is it worth it to stay long enough to earn your death with your life? James Baldwin was the first person to ask this question of me when I read The Fire Next Time in my junior year in college right here at Harvard. I have since come to understand that this is the very question we should all be asking ourselves every day for as long as we are lucky to be alive. Dr. King earned his death way too early Everyone who sat at those tables outlived him, but
but they also earned their own place in history in a nation that wanted them dead too. All of us here this morning have outlived most of them, which means that we should keep worrying about whether or not we are earning our deaths. I've thought a lot about death this year, in part because the nation is sick, there's trouble in our land, and confusion all around. In part, too, because I'm certain I haven't yet lived my life the most. And in part, too, because the terrible behavior that I continue to witness at Harvard, in America, and across this globe has led me to contemplate my own death too early. But I don't want to die. Not yet. Not now. Because I believe that all of this, our sanity, our sacrifices, and our struggles are worth it. All around us, the masses are rising up. Something is happening in our world. And don't we all just want to be free? At the end of every semester, I talk to my students about making history. I tell them that we are already historical subjects, whether we want to be or not, and that history is already judging us, and that historians will write about us for generations if we earn it. And then I ask them this question, and then let them go. Where will you be in the index of the history books written 100 or 50 years from now. My prayer this morning is this. May we live our lives so fully that we earn our deaths. May we have the courage to make history in our own time so that the index will always include us. And may we continue to see those stars from this darkness. Then, and only then, will all of this have been worth it. Please join me in saying the Lord's Prayer, which can be found on the back of your order of worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And on this day, may the Spirit of God rest upon you, to accomplish the good works prepared for you. And that you may be able to go out and change lives. In the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.